sounds like it's from India, unmistakably from India. And yes, it is, with a big historical detour to the Caribbean. How Indian music came to Trinidad and Guyana and what happened to it in the Caribbean mix is the topic of this week's edition of Hip Deep. Hello, Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Now you might ask, what does Indian music have to do with Afropop or Africa? Well, it's quite a story. It involves sugar plantations and Indian laborers brought to work there after the end of slavery. These workers and their descendants held on tightly to the culture they brought with them, and that included their music. But in the fantastic mix of the Caribbean, the influences from Africa and Asia and Europe eventually come together, sometimes in conflict, sometimes in cooperation, and always with some fascinating sounds. Our guide to the music of the Indo-Caribbean world is Peter Manuel. He's professor of ethnomusicology at the City University of New York, and he spent a lot of time with Indo-Caribbean musicians in Guyana and Trinidad, and also in New York, where there is a big community. Peter also went back to the rural parts of India, where these people's ancestors came from, to find their rhythms and songs at the root. In a moment, we'll hear his story. But first, let's get a taste of how the music became what you'd probably recognize as a classic Caribbean sound. Here's Rakesh Yankaran. Shakila run away, yeah, Shakila run away. 
Rakesh Yankaran, and the song is called Shakila Runaway. It's from the late 1990s, and it gives you a sense of the Caribbean side of the Indo-Caribbean music. Josh Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide, Hip Deep, the Indo-Caribbean. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts. Now, let's meet our guest, Peter Manuel. In 1992, Peter began to teach at John Jay College in New York. It's a public college, part of the City University of New York. A lot of the students are immigrants. That's when Peter noticed something in his class groups. Right from my first semester, I encountered students in my classes who had Indian names like Raj um, Gopal or Chantrabati or whatever. And I thought, oh, this is great. Uh, people that I can relate to on the Indian aspect. Peter is an ethnomusicologist and a specialist in Indian music. He plays the sitar and has lived in India. So having lots of Indians in his classes appealed to him. But he realized these Indians were different. But I uh, soon discovered they weren't from India. They were from uh, Trinidad or Guyana. And uh, chatting with them, then I... Uh, discovered that they had a certain familiarity with other kinds of music that I was not uh, familiar with at all. They mentioned certain kinds of folk songs, like Chowtal, for example, certain kinds of what they called local classical music or tan singing, which I'd never heard of. Chowtal. Dance singing. Peter was fascinated, and before long, he got involved in the Indo-Caribbean community in New York, and he traveled to the Caribbean to learn about the music in its historical and cultural context. He became a foremost academic expert on this music, and he wrote a book that is the reference on this topic. I got very intrigued by this kind of music because it's as if they had taken these fragments uh, that they'd gotten from handfuls of records or some knowledgeable people had come a hundred years ago uh, and put these things together in their own way, including genres that sound like um, North Indian classical music genres. But he immediately realized that this is not the austere Indian classical music with the long ragas by courtly musicians on rich carpets. People think of Indian music, they think of oh, uh, sitar and Ravi Shankar and things like that. Um, definitely there would not be much of that. These are not sitarists from the court of Lucknow that are coming. They are farmers who uh, would not have sitars or probably not have much familiarity with that kind of music. There is a very unusual history that is being reflected here, and it's not well known, not even in India. It's the story of the indentured laborers brought from India after the official end of slavery to work on the sugar plantations in the British colonies of the Caribbean. We're talking about Trinidad, Guyana, Jamaica, Barbados. The Dutch colony of Suriname was another destination. And by the way, this is also how Indians ended up in Fiji. But that's a story for another time. There was a need to replace the Afro-Caribbeans who had left the sugar plantations, so they started bringing people from India and especially from 
this one uh, particular area of North India that nowadays would be called the Bhojpuri region, uh, because that is where they speak this Bhojpuri dialect of Hindi. Uh, this is the area of uh, eastern Uttar Pradesh and western Bihar, sort of around the city of Banaras and Patna. These places were poor and rural, so much so that people were willing to go overseas and work under difficult conditions. These are mostly illiterate peasants. This is a rural folk culture that they would have brought with them. And in the realm of music, it's mostly going to be traditional folk songs of that region. The first boatload of indentured laborers from India arrived in Guyana in 1838. By the end of World War I, almost half a million Indians would arrive this way in the Caribbean. They worked in the sugar fields in rough conditions, sometimes not much better than slavery. When they finished their time of indenture, some went back to India. But many, many stayed. And this is the root of Indo-Caribbean culture. They finish their indentured work of five or seven years. They move off the plantation. They set up some Indian villages. They uh, become farmers. Uh, the Afro-Caribbeans are mostly living in the cities and towns. There's not a whole lot of contact with them. And so uh, they are in many ways free to develop or preserve as much of their Indian culture as they wanted. And so as these Indo-Caribbean, we can call them, communities take shape uh, and assume their own sort of direction and form, by the time we get to, let's say, 1910, 1920, they have their own traditions of music. As the indenture system ended, Indo-Caribbean culture became free to grow in its new setting. It's a culture of cricket and Indian-style foods like roti and chickpeas. It's the community that produced the famous Nobel Prize-winning writer V.S. Naipaul. But that was much later, of course, but through it all, there was music. Only a lot of it wasn't documented. It was performed in the fields, in temples, at weddings, but almost never recorded. There were some made in the late 30s and early 40s, but this is in Trinidad, but they're really just sort of imitating the records of film songs and popular songs that they were getting from India at that point, so they don't really tell us anything about Indo-Caribbean music. So we don't really have any recordings of Indo-Caribbean music per se until uh, Alan Lomax. Alan Lomax. That name might ring a bell. It's the same Alan Lomax who made the legendary recordings of old blues musicians in Mississippi, the folklorist who traveled all over the world making field recordings of traditional music. And doing a terrific job at it. Uh, his recordings, whether we're talking about of rural Spain or some village in Italy where they're singing in some language that no one even understands anymore, or in the Caribbean, they're incredibly valuable. In 1962, Alan Lomax went to Trinidad. Let's listen to one of his recordings of Indo-Caribbean music. This is a devotional song known as a bhajan.
Devotional song recorded by Alan Lomax in Trinidad in 1962. The singer is Ramgo Paul. It's on a CD of Lomax's Indo-Caribbean recordings that you can get from Rounder Records. Peter Manuel wrote the liner notes, by the way. There would be things like, for example, women's folk songs. Uh, there's one on the CD, Jaksar, which is a grinding song. So you hear this uh, grinding wheel going that the women are doing, and I guess they're putting chickpeas or whatever into it, and there's a certain song that you sing with that, uh, which would be uh, in Pojpuri Hindi, and we presume that it came from India, or perhaps some of them didn't. He also recorded Chow Tao. This is something that is still widely sung in Trinidad and Guyana during Pagua, or the Holy Spring Festival. 
It's a kind of, musicologists would say, antiphonal song. That is to say, two groups who sing sort of back and forth at each other. You'd have... And then they catch their breath and the other men repeat the same line. And this is accompanied by Doluk, the barrel drum. these lines and it gets faster and faster and these uh, tricky rhythmic modulations and it's uh, great fun and people get very excited and worked up and um, so it's a popular thing. You have all sorts of little temple groups, Hindu temple groups, whether we're talking about Trinidad or Guyana or Suriname or um, Queens, New York. But what about in India? The more Peter got involved in the music of the Indo-Caribbean, the more questions he had of his own. I'm really interested in trying to reconstruct uh, some of these historical aspects of uh, the music, whether we're talking about folk music or local classical music or whatever. What did they create themselves in the Caribbean, let's say, if we're talking about the Caribbean or what came from India. He decided to go back to India and see if he could locate the roots of the Indo-Caribbean music he was getting to know. I went to India in January of 07, uh, tramping around the Bhojpuri region, looking for it, expecting to find it all over the place. This was the beginning of holy season. It was the right season to go hunting for this Chautile music that we are hearing right now, and Peter was deep in the region where the indentured laborers came from. So, why was it so hard to find Chautile? At this point, I was just becoming a sort of ridiculous pest. Everyone I struck up a conversation with, I'd say, so, have you ever heard of Chowtal? And I'd say, what? Um, I'd say, oh, never mind. And finally, over a cup of tea by the roadside, two hours from Benares, a breakthrough. There I was sitting next to some old man, and we were chatting in Hindi. And so uh, he asked me what I was doing. I said, well, I'm studying folk music, and I'm interested in Chowtal. Have you ever heard that? And he said, oh, sure. And he starts singing some Chowtal, and this is like, okay, this is what I'm looking for. Peter went back the next day to meet the man and some of his friends. In that small town in the countryside, he finally hit the mother load. It wasn't just Chowtal, but other kinds of music that he recognized from Guyana and Trinidad. Clearly, in India, this tradition was nearly lost. But Peter knew that in the Caribbean, it was thriving. Nineteen seventeen is the last uh, year in which people came as indentured workers. 
And after that, there was no further input from this Bhojpuri region of India. But by this time, they've also established their own musical traditions, such that if someone came from India and said, oh no, you're singing that song wrong, that's not how it goes, um, instead of sort of obsequiously trying to correct themselves, uh, by this point, the Trinidadians and Guyanese might say, well, uh, this is the way we sing it here. And you're welcome to sing along with us uh, if you want to learn it our way. some pretty big differences between this local classical music of the Indo-Caribbean and the actual classical music of India. First of all, North Indian classical music has a whole system of rags, which they don't really have in the Caribbean, that is to say musical modes. In the Caribbean, it's more a question of song genres, that is to say uh, vocal songs with lyrics taken out of old books. And some of these books are from the 19th century, and uh, these people prize them and hoard them and um, very zealously guarding them in some cases. They might say, and I definitely heard this from elder musicians in Trinidad and Guyana, that we sing it the traditional way. It's Indians who have changed. We are maintaining the tradition. Coming up, we'll see how Indians in the Caribbean did more than just maintain the tradition. They also built their own pop music, contributing to the rich multicultural Caribbean sound. You can read our complete interview with Peter Manuel on our website, afropop.org. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Welcome back, Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide. And today in our series Hip Deep, we are discovering the music of the Indo-Caribbean diaspora, the descendants of laborers brought to work the sugar fields. Now they are about half the population of Guyana and also of Trinidad. And from Trinidad, here's Anand Yankaran. <laughs> Long live the people's day. 
Anan Yankaran, you're hearing the change from some very Indian traditional sounds to something more mixed than Caribbean. That change has taken place in other areas too, not just music, and not without difficulties. Here again is our guest, Peter Manuel. Trinidad has had a very lively musical scene, all kinds of music making. It's a kind of middle-income country, not terribly poor. Uh, and it's been a fairly open political and cultural society. You know, Indians have complained that they're discriminated against historically and so on. But um, one way or another, they've been able to preserve a lot of their culture or to innovate new things. And the most overt Uh, example of that is this whole chutney phenomenon, which really flourishes in the 70s and 80s. Mmm, chutney. What a great name for a style of music. And just like its namesake, it's a little bit sweet and a little bit spicy. Just listen to this song by the so-called Rani, or Queen of Chutney, Trinidad's Rasika Dindyal.
Chutney singer Rasika Dindial. She's actually the daughter of a well-known local classical musician in Trinidad. It's fun, isn't it? Well, Chutney is a form of pop music that came out of folk songs, the songs of women at weddings and other parties. Again, this goes all the way back to India. Peter Manuel. The women, especially of the bride's family, might sing various sorts of songs amongst themselves, sometimes with very spicy, ribald lyrics, making fun of the groom, uh, you know, even of his um, private parts or whatever. Some of them would be very uh, lewd and humorous. And then women are also getting up and dancing. There are no men around, so they don't have to worry about being blasphemous or uh, shaming the family. It's just women off perhaps in a field or in some house. So how did this turn into a pop music in the Caribbean? Peter Manuel says it seems that these women's songs came out of the private realm into commercial music thanks to a singer from Suriname. I think it's the early 60s, someone produced a record of this elderly Surinamese woman named Dropati uh, singing these sorts of songs, and she sings it very well, they're catchy. Uh, this became very popular in Trinidad, and people say that this was one of the things that sparked the chutney vogue in Trinidad. Let's listen to this great doyen of Indo-Caribbean music. Here is Dropati. of Dropati, the older woman from Suriname who helped launch Chutney music when she brought women's folk songs onto the stage. Before long, Chutney became the sound of the Indo-Caribbean. Not everyone was happy about that. Here's Peter Manuel. 
It was very controversial in the Indian community because some people said, oh, this is disgraceful. It's okay for men to dance around, but for women to do this, this is unacceptable. And this whole sort of uh, polemic erupted in newspapers, talk shows, and so on. Uh, but basically, the conservatives were shouted down or danced down, and these chutney fets became very popular. Uh, every weekend, you have them in Trinidad. Um, and it's spread now to Guyana, and there are chutney clubs here in New York City as well. The next step was the sort of creolization of this music. Ah, yes, creolization, because we're missing something in this story, aren't we? Up to now, by and large, we've been talking about these Indian communities in the Caribbean in isolation. There's a reason for this. It's true that in a lot of ways, the Indian community in Trinidad and Guyana has formed its identity and social life separately from the Black or Afro-Caribbean community. These countries' populations are split more or less 50-50, and there's been plenty of competition. In both Trinidad and Guyana, there were political parties, more or less, for each community. That ensured a level of tension and suspicion. Guyana had a leftist Indian leader named Chedi Jagan, but his government was destabilized and in 1966, his Afro-Guyanese rival, Forbes Burnham, took over. Burnham ruled in authoritarian style until his death in 1985. In Trinidad, Things were not so bad, but political power has gone back and forth between the communities. But all that is politics. Culture as a way of creeping ahead and making some of the changes that politicians resist. was the unifying factor? Rhythm. This is the Indo-Caribbean drumming called Tassa. It's this thunderously loud drum ensemble, these big heavy uh, barrel drums called dhole, uh, maybe three or four of them, these uh, medium-sized drums called fuller, and they think that's because it fills out the sound, it makes it more full, but in fact uh, it seems more likely that that term comes from fula, which is a West African term. And that, Peter says, is just one example of the mix of African and Indian roots in this drumming. rhythms that they play on Tassa, many of them seem to come straight out of India. Uh, but then there are others that have names like Dingo Lay or Steel Pan that are clearly Tassa versions of Afro-Caribbean rhythms. So, connecting on a subtle level through rhythm. The level of words is more complicated. Indians didn't really get involved in Calypso. In fact, some Calypso songs used to make fun of Indians. And steel band music also was mainly Afro-Trinidadian. 
but the way Afro-Trinidadian music was performed and consumed had an impact on Indo-Caribbean music. It was gradually considered acceptable to do this in public, men and women dancing together, and I'm sure you would have Indian men and women uh, in the 50s or the 60s, whatever, looking at Afro-Trinidadians dancing and having so much fun and thinking that, gee, why, why can't we do that too? Still, the actual musical genres were developing separately, even though they had some rhythms in common or got performed in similar ways. Separate until Soka comes in. Uh, Lord Shorty, who was a calypso singer, felt that um, Trinidad needed its own dance music the same way Jamaica had, so he came up with this soca rhythm in collaboration with a, another musician, and uh, of course the soca rhythm is going doom, 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 doom. He himself uh, was a sort of friend of uh, East Indians, uh, always had one ear tuned into East Indian culture, and he claimed that it was at least in part inspired by East Indian drumming. And then guess what? Influenced by Indian rhythms, soca turns around and has its own impact on chutney. A new genre is born that combines the two. Chutney Soka. The early 90s, Chutney is now a big uh, phenomenon in the East Indian community. Chutney dances and fats all over the place and performed more and more by what you could say dance bands, electrified instruments. They were, instead of playing harmonium, they, you have someone playing synthesizer. And Dholuk, uh, it's hard to amplify it, so it was much easier to do it on a drum machine. And they could either uh, imitate the Dholuk rhythm on a drum machine or play a Soka rhythm. You just press the Soka button. And then you have doom 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 and singing the traditional chutney melodies over this, and this became then what was called chutney soka. Decided not to listen to her So one day I 
say Chutney Soka represents the realization of Trinidadian and Guyanese identity. It's simultaneously African and Indian, black and brown. But it also meant a challenge for Indo-Caribbean traditionalists, not only because their music was converging with the other community, but also because of the decline of Hindi in favor of English and the growing use of electronics and drum machines instead of traditional instruments. But then other people are saying, no, the music has to change. If you just go on doing the same old songs, then young people won't be interested. And rather, the Chutney Soka is a way of keeping them interested in Indian culture in a modernized fashion. And I think there's much to be said for that point of view. Let's listen to one of the big stars of Chutney Soka. This is Ricky Jay with the huge recent hit, Mortar. I Sunday morning in them Indian wedding, them old ladies singing. See how them young girl whining. Mortar, 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 mortar. Together. Hey. Now I'm feeling the game, but I'm sitting there. 
That's Ricky Jay doing more tour, and he's joined there by the Soka star Michelle Montano. Chutney Soka in the house, Trinidad in the house. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Carnegie Hall, presenting a 60th birthday concert celebration for Angelique Kidjo on March 14th. Ticket information at carnegiehall.org. enjoying some chutney soca, but that isn't the only musical display of multi-ethnic identity in Trinidad and Guyana. You have people of Indian origin making other kinds of Caribbean music too, like reggae. You might have a dancehall reggae singer with uh, uh, an Indo-Trinidadian musician. There's various sorts of fusions like that. And you have a lot of young Indo-Trinidadians and Indo-Guyanese who are very tuned into uh, dancehall and and do their own versions of that. Apache Warrior, this is from the 90s dance hall, but with Indian rhythms, and he's very much sort of foregrounding his Indo-Guyanese identity, but uh, shouting out to the posses all through the West Indies and in India, you know, aspiring for that sort of transnational market. Chihuahua, making Indo-Guyanese dancehall reggae. And here's another kind of cultural fusion. It's Mungal Patasar from Trinidad and his group Pantar. The name alone tells you the agenda. Peter Manuel explain. Pan is from steel band or steel pan and tar from sitar, so pan and tar. There are different sorts of songs on this. Some are a bit more on the Indian side, some are a bit more sort of on the jazz or Creole side, but the key element is that uh, they combine his sitar playing with a collaborator who plays steel drum. There's so much discussion about how the East Indians and the uh, Afro-Trinidadians are supposed to relate in national culture. What is Trinidadian culture? And it's always sort of being negotiated and argued about. And there will always be people who want to promote various sorts of fusion in a self-conscious way. Let's listen to Mungal Patasar and Pantar mixing the sound of steel pan music and the Indian sitar. 
here they are doing a reinterpretation of an old Calypso song called Old Lady, straight out of Trinidad. From Trinidad, Mungal Patasar and Pantar. So that's where things are now. But in the meantime, what about local classical tradition? Peter says it hasn't been easy. Classical tan singing is limping along, he says, while the younger generation grooves to the more pop-oriented sounds, just like everywhere else. But still, the traditions are carrying on, and one thing that has helped is that Indo-Caribbeans, who descend from migrants, now have done another migration of their own, to North America. It's a double diaspora, and it has helped stimulate the music scene. Now in Toronto or New York, there are people making music, touring and performing, and also maintaining traditional customs. Peter Manuel visits them frequently. I was at an event in Long Island in which a young man was being apprenticed to his spiritual uh, guide, this pundit. And they did all these traditional songs and so on. And uh, they did a Matikor, which is a particular kind of women's uh, song session in which they do a little ritual off in some woods or in a field. Nowadays, you don't have many people who can sing these songs anymore because they don't know Hindi anymore. But there are semi-professional women. There are these two uh, women in their 70s who are very feisty and funny, and they know all these old songs, and so they were there to uh, sing along with this and to lead the others in singing. And here's a recording from one of the women Peter is talking about, Bagmati Ragbir.
the countryside of North India to the sugar plantations of Trinidad and Guyana, and now to the new immigrant communities of Queens and Long Island, the adventure of the Indo-Caribbean community continues. And with it, the music they have protected and remade all at the same time. A big thank you to Peter Manuel for sharing his deep knowledge of Indo-Caribbean music with us. You can read our full interview with Peter on our website, afropop.org. Afropop partners, Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Siddhartha Meter. We had help from Eva Peskin. Our chief audio engineer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Alistair Sim and Mike Kaplan. Banning Air is the senior editor of Afropop.org. Our director of new media is Ben Richman. And I'm Georges Collinet.